Hello, my name's Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you are listening to the Important Cinema Club. Oh, excuse me, excuse me. My name is Will Sloan. Sorry, I'm trying to do <laughs> the, the white guy voice, the Richard Pryor white guy voice. And today we're talking about Richard Pryor, a very funny man who made comedy films. Yes, the conventional wisdom on Richard Pryor is that greatest comedian of all time and failed by Hollywood. And do we have hot takes on this episode? No. No, we don't. Sorry. Okay, you can stop listening now. Yeah. And if you're a Richard Pryor fan and you want us to talk about that one specific film that you don't feel gets enough attention... Sorry. Sorry. Turn it off. And the reason we say that is because we did Rodney Dangerfield a few months ago and we've been inundated. Well, not inundated. We've received multiple emails saying... Why didn't you do Easy Money? Yes. So if you want us to talk about moving, yes. if you want us to talk about, sorry, we didn't watch Jojo Dancer. His, no, we didn't. Listen, we don't have time. <laughs> That's what it comes down and to. certain the of these movies took a lot out of me. And the thing is, like Jojo Dancer, I see a lot of people say, it's interesting. Not very good, though. The fact that it's, you know, Richard Pryor directing and basically doing an autobiography. Mm-hmm. But... Again, we wanted to focus, I guess, on his popular stuff to see if a film could capture that raw energy. But why Richard Pryor? Why now? I think it was that fun, that reputation, you know, that conventional wisdom was one that we wanted to just examine to see if it was true. And also because... (laughs) Have we ever been surprised when we've done like a comedy actor that like, oh, but their movies are genuinely funny and not bad. Maybe in one of those big screen comedian failures episodes, Mm -hmm. there was a surprise. I don't know. Yeah, but I would love that like like a comedian that they say that like his movies aren't good that we watch and we're like, what were people thinking? Like these movies are great mm-hmm. in rocket man, the Canadian comedian Harland Williams. Oh, he just, he's just is blown off the screen, but that's not really what happens. But having not really, I mean, I've, I've seen a good, a good amount of Richard Pryor stand up, but I hadn't really done a dive into it. I'll his... just say stand up hilarious. Yeah, Watched his most famous stand up special for this Richard Pryor live in concert. Yeah, there's a reason that you see those clips all the time that it was put in the Library of Congress. And we all know the several good Richard Pryor movies. Blue Collar. I guess some people like The Wiz. Yeah. No? I mean, I'm not a fan, but I know a lot of people love that movie. Lady Sings the Blues. Lady Sings the Blues. Yeah. Hit! Exclamation point. Mm -hmm. Directed by Sidney J. Lumet is also very good. But as a way into Richard Pryor, I think it would be useful to retrace his origin story, which of course has become part of American folklore. Grew up in a bordello. His grandmother was the matriarch of the family, as well as his chief caregiver, as well as the madam, the leader of the business. His father and his uncle were pimps. His mother was a sex worker. And in the documentary we watched, Richard Pryor Omit the Logic, Michael Schultz, the director of a movie called Which Way is Up, theorized, and I quote, If you grow up in a bordello, you see people's very core. There are no masks. There are no facades. So, you know, we saw there was a clip in there of Richard Pryor talking about, you know, in one of his stand up shows, talking about, you know, he met white people for the first time when they would come to the neighborhood and support the local economy. And, you know, he had a joke. You're going to hear something hilarious, which is me imitating Richard Pryor. (laughs) All Uh, right. I'm, I'm, you know, buckling in for one of those classic Will impressions. Please don't do it, Will. But but, no, I'll I'll imitate him doing the white guy voice, you know, like a guy coming to his home and saying like, oh, hello, Sonny. Is your mother home? I'd like a blowjob. And, you know, you can see 
the barrier between the public and the private self dissolves in interactions like that. And I hope, hopefully, that, you know, this way that he grew up won't affect him emotionally throughout his entire career. Oh, certainly not. He's not like, you know, any other comedian who was starved for love, you Mm -hmm. know, traumatized in, you know, various ways as a child. And and then then becomes a self-destructive individual that can create an attachment with an audience because he can take those miseries and pain and, you know, reform them into something that's funny and also universal but by consequence creates a life that is just eaten away until basically nothing is left you know revisiting the three stand-up movies and by the way he was kind of the progenitor of the theatrically released stand-up i think he had the first one didn't he yeah richard Pryor live in concert 1979 i mean the audience is such an active participant in all three of those films you know for the first half of live in concert the house lights are on you basically see the crowd for most of it like it it starts like he comes out before the intermission is even really up and so the audience is still filing in and he's like making jokes and like there's there's a there's a photographer in the front row he's like yeah you don't even have camera in that film do you yeah i don't even have film in that camera yeah and he's like you know taking the guy's camera and they're you know the the audience there's very little barrier between you know just as the public and private selves dissolve in the bordello there's very little there's a dissolution of any barrier between himself and his art himself and his audience certainly he was very influential for you know not just the the ways that he would like take his pain and turn it into comedy which now sounds like so cliche but you Mm -hmm. know you compare him to bill cosby bob bill cosby yeah yeah, even lenny bruce where there's you know richard Pryor when he's doing it he's speaking from himself and like it's not just generic kind of soft platitudes like someone like cosby was doing and that people could enjoy i mean he did start that way that's what he wanted his comedy to be early on and then he figured out oh no i'm gonna speak more to where I am at this point in my life, and that will create a connection. Well, as he started doing comedy, you know, I I think he first started performing around Greenwich Village in 1963. By 1966, he's headlining in Las Vegas. And the way for... The way that he thought and and the precedent for a black comedian becoming successful in a white world was, yeah, imitate Cosby. Mm. You got a suit and you're doing jokes about your family, stuff like that. And then in the documentary, somebody recounted that, you know, he was headlining at the Aladdin Hotel in Las Vegas and he looked out and he saw Dean Martin staring back at him from the audience. And something about that, like triggered some like nervous breakdown (laughs) in him. Like, fuck, I'm not I'm not being myself. And apparently he like went went crazy that night he was like hanging off the chandelier and swearing and a real jerry lewis yeah saying some real obscenities and he and he got thrown out and everyone said oh his career is over but then from that point on like he rebuilt from the ground up some of what he did in those stand-up shows again it's like so much comedy it's hard to feel the impact at the first time but the sheer amount of profanity all the Mm n-words like that you know just hadn't been heard i mean lenny bruce swore but like i'm gonna say richard Pryor, funnier yes funnier than lenny bruce but like lenny bruce did a whole bit about the n-word where it was like clinical almost Mm. it was like oh isn't it interesting the n-word you know if you use it this way it means something if you use it this way but richard Pryor just like used it as this like punctuation 
which was shocking for a lot of people. Also, the way he used his body on stage, like in live in concert, there's that incredible scene where he talks about having the heart attack. Yeah. Throws himself in. Yeah. I mean, he does what, you know, Robert Williams make a shtick too, like switching voices over and over again to create characters. And that creates humor as well. Yeah. I mean, Robin Williams in that doc. (laughs) I mean, he also had a black guy voice. Yeah, he he absolutely did. Robin Williams did. Robin Williams did. Yeah. Oh, and to say nothing of the subject matter. I mean, talking about like racist police violence or I mean, I'm making him sound like homework if you talk about like all the social commentary. Well, watch that first concert film. But we're not here to talk about him as a stand up. We're here to talk about him as a on screen actor. Now, Will suggested to watch a movie called The Mac, and I added it to my list, and I was like, I don't, I don't think Richard Pryor is in this very much. Well, I'm glad I watched The Mac. It's 19- Good movie. Yeah, it came out in 1972. I've seen it a long time ago. I had never seen The Mac. I know it's such a, like, cult movie. It is really good. Richard Pryor's not in it all that much, although when he is in it, I mean, the story is about this, like, pimp named Goldie who who is released from prison after five years and wants to basically ascend to middle class via pimping. And the whole movie is about the various interconnecting power configurations, you know, the police, the mob, capitalism itself, that sort of keep a guy like Goldie in his place. And, uh, you know, Richard Pryor is in a supporting role in, as one of Goldie's, like, accomplices. And he is very good when he's on screen. Yeah, I mean, like, he's very good when he's in those dramatic films because he has that electricity that he brings to it, almost like a live wire. You're not sure what he's going to do. Like Blue Collar, for mm-hmm. instance. Like that last scene in Blue Collar between him and Harvey Keitel. So like, good. Yeah, like like incredibly powerful. And, you know, just like in the concert films, when he's doing those characters, when he's talking in all those voices, in the best way, he makes it look easy because you're not conscious of the artistry. It just looks like this is like, I mean, obviously there is a lot of artistry, but it just looks like like the comedy is almost like taking him over. Now, is there a friendship that formed between Zalman King and Richard Pryor? Because Michael Campus, who directed The Mac, would go on to direct The Passover Plot, which stars Zalman King. And then Richard Pryor would also appear with Zalman King in Some Call It Lovin'. Yeah, which is, have you seen Some Call It Lovin'? No. It's pretty good. Yeah, that was a very, very early Vinegar Syndrome release. That's right. When they were kind of experimenting with more That was a sub-label, I feel, that they had. Etiquette Pictures, yeah. Mm. They didn't last long. Now they have a million sub-labels. It's surprising to see early on in his career that like Richard Pryor was just bouncing all over the place. He was in a 1970 World War II film, which I'm sure he does not have a major role in, even though if you look at the public domain-looking cover, he is right front and center. You also have him in a film director directed by Fred Williamson and Adios Amigos. Yep, that's right. And that you also have like him showing up in stuff like Car Wash from the previously mentioned Michael Schultz. So by, you know, 1972, he started to get mainstream film roles, sort of. In Lady Sings the Blues, which is, of course, the movie where Diana Ross plays Billie Holiday, he was hired to play the piano man and he was allowed to improvise. And of course, you let Richard Pryor improvise, he takes over the movie. So during filming, the part was expanded and expanded and expanded to the point where it went from a cameo to a supporting role and like one of the things that the movie was marketed on mel brooks wanted him to star in blazing saddles which he was one of the four writers of went all the way up to the board at warner brothers who vetoed it because by that point word was already out that richard Pryor had a bit of a drug problem Mm -hmm. what 
he had a drug problem? Oh, I'm learning this right here, live on the air? So after that rejection, Pryor had a sort of personal breakdown. Once again, rebuilt his career, hired new management with the idea of, I want to be, well, as Paul Schrader said in the documentary, he wanted to be not just the biggest star, but also the blackest star which is crucial. It's different than the sort of, for want of a better term, assimilationist thing that Bill Cosby did in his career. Yeah, where you're non-threatening and then it's like, oh, okay, this is, as maybe the parlance of the time would say, one of the good ones. Right, yeah, Sidney Poitier, mm. another example. No disrespect to Sidney Poitier. It's just a well, different- Well, we're about to disrespect Sidney Poitier. Oh, <laughs> oh, goodness. A few minutes. The Breakout film, and there were a number of different movies like Car, Car Wash, but the Breakout film is 1976's Silver Streak. Why didn't we watch- Watch this one. Like, I watched a trailer for this and I looks funny. I saw Silver Streak years ago. It's okay. Yeah. I mean, it has that famous scene where... Yeah, he wears... Gene Wilder wears blackface. Yeah, which, you know, funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Will, Will says, blackface scene still stands up. Well, it's, be it's because Richard Pryor is trying to tell him how to be black. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, sorry, folks, watch it. Tell me that I'm wrong. <laughs> but instead, we watched the second Pryor Wilder film, the number three movie of 1980. The number three. You, you are obsessed movie. with this fact. I'm obsessed with this fact because this movie made $100 million. It made almost $20 million more than Airplane did, which was number four. I'm obsessed with this fact because it has been forgotten. Well, maybe somebody listening to this is going well, to say, I fucking love Stir Crazy. But. Did I do what I always do with these kind of films is go to letter, uh, YouTube, look at the trailer and just read the comments underneath. Does it have people going like, ah, comedy used to be great. This is my favorite comedy film. It does indeed. Of course. Stir crazy. Gene Wilder, Richard Pryor, back together again, looking old. very old. Old. Richard Pryor would light himself on fire during the filming of this film. How about that? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, oftentimes when people talk about Richard Pryor, it's like the pre-lighting himself on fire and then the post-lighting himself on fire. Well, you know, it's- This was right in the middle. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because to me, I don't think the dichotomy is quite that clear, just in the sense that- Richard Pryor Live on the Sunset Strip, I think, is an amazing stand-up film. I think the stuff that he does about his addictions in that, some of the some of the highest peaks of comedy. Isn't that the one as well that they show outtakes from in the documentary that we watched? Yeah. They filmed it over two nights. The first night, an unambiguous disaster. Yeah, where he just like would lose his place. He was like, I can't do it. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. But the second night was great. But yeah. Stir crazy. Stir, stir crazy. So again, the number three movie of 1980. What was one and two? Number one was The Empire Strikes Back. Maybe you've heard of it. Number two, nine to five. <laughs> nine to five. Nine to five was the number two movie of nineteen eighty. I like nine to five. Yeah, yeah. It's nine just, to five. Just a different da, world, da, though. Da, it's da, not. Da, it's da. not like you know Avengers, whatever. Mm -mm. It's yeah. It's nine to five. It's the brand of Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor. Now, what is the plot of this movie, Will? So they are two very, very silly men. They, they are. Mm -mm 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 -mm. One of them is a silly man. Gene Wilder. I think. Th I think they are both on the spectrum of being silly. Richard Pryor in this movie. Mostly has like a faraway expression on his face. Oh, yeah. Staring off in the middle distance would seemingly rather be anywhere else but here. Yeah, he's the Buster Keaton to Gene Wilder's <laughs> Jim, Jimmy wow, Durante. That is a generous reading to this movie. Well, I mean, I'm comparing him to Buster Keaton's worst movies. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> but Gene Wilder, had I never seen like one of his good movies, I would have. We, we, we'd I be putting looked... this on the like failed comedians episode. Of, had I not seen the producers or Willy Wonka, I'd be looking at Gene Wilder in this movie and saying, 
why was this man a star? He's, what else is there other than Gene Wilder? What are Young, young Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. the Mel Brooks ones. Yeah. Maybe we should do a Gene Wilder episode where we oh, watch- His we, directorial episode. We watch too? like The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, Smarter Brother, and Hanky Panky, and all that garbage. Yeah. Yeah. He directed a bunch of films, too. I, I know. I know. <laughs> so in this movie, they're, they're, two, they're two very silly men, one of whom is sillier than the other. Yes. I, so I can't get over this. Like, Richard Pryor's the straight man? Yeah. He is. For God's sake. And Gene Wilder, what, like, he looks a hundred years old in this movie. Oh my God. <laughs> like, I... Can I, we just digress to talk about the scene where he's on the mechanical bull? Okay. I wanted, I wanted to say, get this I, old I, man off the bull. So, like, Gene Wilder's on a mechanical bull, and, like, it went on for five minutes to the point that I, like, texted Will, and I'm like, my God, this bull scene. <laughs> like... There's no jokes in this scene. It's just like Gene Wilder on a mechanical bull. It was surreal. It was Lynchian watching this (laughs) scene. There's like fades too to them watching him. Watching this old man on a bull. that old when this movie was made sure looks old so they're they, again very i cannot stress this enough very silly men yes and they're trying to get a job and they both dress up as big chickens they do shenanigans like dressed as chickens but then somebody steals their chicken costumes and robs a bank uh-oh they go to prison and you know typical of the comedy of the film is like when they're in court and the judge says i sentence you to 120 years both of them like mug and they do, they're like oh what about the scene where gene wilder comes back to his jail cell and it looks like that richard pryor is being sexually assaulted by the big guy there tears running down his face that's some good stuff and he's like yeah. please help I, me one bit that i laughed at was when they both get up in the morning and start to piss in the same toilet together Hey, directed by Sidney Poitier. Sidney Poitier directed this film. Sidney Poitier did do some better movies before this, too. Yeah, yeah. Like, I really like Buck and Preacher. Yeah. I don't know what the hell's happening here. Well, listen, I think what we need to get at is why was this movie so huge in 1980? Because it can't be denied. $100 million when almost nothing made $100 million. And this is not a movie, like, in the last 10 years where people are like, you should watch Stir Crazy. I don't, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, folks. Maybe yeah, if people maybe are, we're not in touch with the common man. You know what I'm worried about? People are going to just Google, they're going to search in their iTunes. Richard Pryor or Stir Crazy. And they're going to say, boy, I love Stir Crazy. Ooh, a podcast about Stir Crazy. And then we're going to get 21 star iTunes reviews because of this. <laughs> All the Stir Crazy bros out there who are going <laughs> to. Listen, this is a vulgar tourist masterpiece. You guys don't get it. I mean, could you make a case for this? And I know you're going to go, ugh. Like, my God. I could not believe at the lack of jokes in this movie. Well, it's all, they're just making faces. Yeah, making faces. That's all it is. Like, a typical scene, a very typical scene is when they go into the prison, and they're walking through the prison hall, and the sound is really echoey, and the cinematography is really flat, and Richard Pryor says something like, oh, we got to be bad. We got to be bad here, because they're, you know, they're going to kick our asses. We got to be bad. So he starts, like, walking really bad, and then Gene Wilder starts walking really bad. And the joke is... Oh, isn't it funny? These two like silly boys, one of whom is Gene Wilder, one of whom isn't even black. They're being bad in prison. That's the joke. That's the joke. I cannot believe that there were two more Gene Wilder, Richard Pryor movies after this. Which were apparently a lot worse than this. Yeah. We should have watched those. See no evil, hear no evil, and another you. Well, another you is like... A forgotten film. It's almost like a snuff film. It's like you've got got Richard Pryor with MS just desperately trying to... 
desperately trying to get through the movie. But okay, getting back to Stir Crazy, because I want to have empathy for this movie and the people who loved it. In the documentary, somebody proposes that they kind of together created, well, they didn't create because there was already salt and pepper before this, but they, they, they spearheaded, they popularized the idea of the interracial buddy comedy. Yeah. Would we have our much-loved Rush Hour, if or, not for the... Okay. Or, or Lethal Weapon. Yeah. Lethal Weapon. Any of those movies. I'm sure there are others. Yeah. And may- Shanghai New. <laughs> may- maybe we wouldn't. For audiences in 1980, there was something about this pairing of Richard Pryor on the one hand and, you know, nerdy, old-looking Gene Wilder that was, was electric. There was a tension there, protons hitting electrons that, for them, was, was dynamic. And I don't feel it now because Richard Pryor is so checked out in this movie. Oh, he completely checked out. And Gene Wilder, a little bit a little bit too much. Now, I threatened to watch The Toy, which we didn't do. Which I, Every time I look at it, I'm like, Richard Donner directed The Toy? Jackie Gleason hires Richard Pryor to be his son's toy for a week. Yeah, I mean, you could do your university essay about that. Mm-hmm. So instead, instead of a Richard Donner movie, we watched a Walter Hill movie. Oh, right. The Long Riders, right? Nope. 1985's Brewster's Millions. Oh, so this yeah. movie, okay, the plot, I'm sure many of you know the plot. It's Brewster's It was audience. made like eight times based on the novel. Richard Pryor is a failing minor league baseball player with his good friend John Candy, who also doesn't have a lot to do. Wh- whatever you say about this movie, at least Richard Pryor gets to star in it. Yes. The movie rests on his shoulders, and his shoulders give out from under it. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it is his movie. So both of them, they get kicked out of their, their ball team. They have no prospects, but what's this? Richard Pryor had a great 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 uncle who has no other heirs, and so he promises to give his $300 million fortune to him only if he can spend $30 million in 30 days, leaving no assets at the end of it. Yes. So he can't own anything. And after he, he every money he spends, he needs a receipt for. That's right. Or else it doesn't count. Yeah. And so one of the things that I will remember the most about this movie is that when it ends, screen fades to black, credits roll up. As if Walter was like, we're out of here. We're done. We told our story. This no is da- who needs a denouement? Nope. Nothing like that. Mm-hmm. Did you laugh during this movie? No. I don't think I laughed once. No? Did you laugh? Um, hmm. I, I found it amusing. I mean, after Stir Crazy, this was like a cool glass of water. Yeah, I, it was. I liked it better than Stir Crazy. Yeah. Because I didn't w- have to look at Gene Wilder. <laughs> <laughs> and John Candy was I'd there? Rather, I'd rather see John Candy than Not Gene giving, Wilder. I mean, the big structural problem with this movie is that Richard Pryor is dealing with the situation alone. Yeah. If he had like John Candy in on it, but the gimmick is that Richard Pryor can't tell anyone this is happening. Right. So there isn't any like fun tension between friends trying to figure out a situation. There's also no not a lot of tension of there is belatedly introduced and not really often referred to a situation where like if he doesn't get the money then the money goes to some someone some lawyers there, there's some there's some wheelings and dealings in the boardroom so but that is not really dealt with a lot for the most part the movie is just richard Pryor spending money yeah and a real bucket list if you will and there needed to be i think more tension there needed to be more obstacles thrown in his way because he basically just spends the money and then at the very end, easily yeah and then and spoiler, he gets the $300 million at the end. <laughs> yep. There's There are some late-in-the-game complications at the end. Not but. a lot of things that Richard Pryor needs to solve in this movie in yeah. clever ways. Like, what people remember is that like he sends a stamp, a rare stamp that he buys. Yeah. And he voids it by using it. But for the most part, he just hires a lot of people. And he- oh, he's not allowed to destroy anything that he buys either. Right. So that's the other thing. So... 
you know, he figures it out, I guess, throwing a lot. Like, he basically just, I threw a lot of parties, and then I used up all my money. The yeah. end. So, what do you think of the Richard Pryor quotient in this movie? I mean, there's a lot of it. He's almost in every frame, I think. Do you like him in the movie? He's fine. Yeah. He's just panicked and like... I mean, it, it's tragic, though, isn't it? I mean, this is this is the problem with Richard Pryor's movie career, because he's doing the Richard Pryor thing, but it's, it's almost like there's no fire behind the eyes. Yeah, well, this is the thing, right, is that he doesn't get to be like Eddie Murphy, where Eddie Murphy is fiery and he's pushing up against the people that he's meeting. Like, in yeah. this film, Richard Pryor, there's no push against anyone that he's facing off. It's funny. Like, Eddie Murphy is such a better movie star than Richard Pryor is, but Richard Pryor is such a better stand-up than Eddie Murphy is. Like, which is not to say that Eddie Murphy didn't have talent as a stand-up. He did some funny stuff, but it's like... With Eddie Murphy, you know, he's well, got... let me check out this raw stand-up special. I don't think I'll be offended in any way, There's right? a funny track about gay people. I'm sure Ooh. he stands against homophobia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was thinking of the ice cream bit from Delirious. I don't That's... even remember that part. Look it up. It's funny. <laughs> okay. And then skip past everything else in Delirious. <laughs> but, like, he had a certain stage presence. Yeah. But, like, Eddie Murphy was a kind of, like, rock star comedian. Like, he had the leather jacket and mm. uh, the skin-tight leather pants and... <laughs> Hickory dickory duck. Yeah, he was that kind of thing. And it was all about, like, that, that kind of... Of like I'm the biggest star ever but in all of the Richard Pryor concert films like he's he's exposing himself he doesn't care about like it, being it, cool he embraces looking foolish mm-hmm. and it's all about his failings and the way that the audience yeah is a participant in those performances like in the second one live on the sunset strip which is after the accident like you feel palpably the presence of the audience like he even emerges from the audience in the first scene and then in the third one here and now the audience is heckling him from beginning to end, and he's having to deal with that. There's there's not that kind of like godlike, even though like he 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 is a god of stand-up, the audience doesn't the audience doesn't feel that kind of separation the way they do with a rock star. But then in movies, in so many of the movies, like I maybe well, it's a bit like how Eddie Murphy later in his career, like just sort of said, Okay, biggest paycheck. Yeah, family you know? film, let me just be there. Yeah, yeah. No friction. Yeah, phone it in. That's kind of what happened with Richard Pryor really early. On and he, but I'm sure have... they both came alive in Eddie Murphy's directorial and starring film Harlem Nights, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure <laughs> we didn't see that one. Hey, if you think there's a Richard Pryor film that we missed, just you just you keep, keep it, it on yourself. the inside. Keep it <laughs> yeah. yourself. We need to discover it in our own time. And I cannot emphasize enough. Watch a stand-up. It's still funny. Maybe the greatest stand-up of all time. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, we didn't watch any other movies because we were like, we're spent. We're done. (laughs) Please. Enough. But I'm sure a couple years down the line, we're going to be like, hey, it's a new Patreon episode. Another you. Here we go. (laughs) I actually kind of want to watch another you now. How do you feel about Richard Pryor in Lost Highway? Because you remember when the movie came out, people were like, look at David Lynch exploiting this man with MS. Yeah, I was looking that up. I mean, I found an old interview with David Lynch where he said, I just like Richard Pryor. Yeah, I wanted to put him in a movie. Yeah, yeah. And I I saw David Lynch get really defensive about that Mm. being like being like, how dare people project that onto it? You know, I just think he's a great man and has lots of wisdom and I wanted to work with him. And I think that's a little disingenuous. Oh, you think so? Well, because isn't that whole scene filled with like, look at these weirdos. Well, the whole movie is. I mean, it's like Robert Blake or like one of the people in the movie is. Look at Baltazar Getty. Look at him. One of the people in the movie is the guy who shot Brandon Lee. Yeah. Is he? I don't even remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there is kind of a kind of boulevard of broken dreams thing going on in that movie nevertheless i mean i think it's perhaps artistically defensible first of all richard pryor's an adult he knows yeah. what he's doing you know maybe it was good for him on some level to be in a, a movie to have something yeah, to do yeah, yeah and like you can't you can't 
look at Richard Pryor and not realize that he has MS and he's not the guy that we saw in live and stir concert. crazy. Stir, stir. <laughs> Actually, he is more energetic in, in Lost Highway, he maybe. Is. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, do I like seeing him in Lost Highway? No. But then maybe I think there's a bit of a challenge. There's a bit of the movie saying like, well, why shouldn't he be in this movie? Why shouldn't you look at him? And he's much harder to watch in Superman 3. Oh, God. I mean, Superman 3 stinks. Wait. That was directed by Sidney J. Fury. No, that was Superman 4. Oh, right. Richard that, 3 was, Superman R- 3 was Richard, Richard Lester. That's right. So, as per usual, you can send us letters at the Important Cinema Club podcast at gmail.com. Bit Our, of a somber mood in the room right now as we and, as we have to bury Richard Pryor again. Because we just the, dug the, him the up. Gra- the greatest stand-up of all time, for God's sake. So, I like that you go out, like, we go out on a high. <laughs> Some yeah. people are like, oh, you were too hard on his film. We go out, well, I was trying to go out on a high, and then you were like, what about Lost Highway? And it's like, oh, yeah. Well, I knew yeah. letters were going to come out of people asking us about that Lost question. Lost Highway, yeah. So I haven't seen that movie in, I think, 15 years. I haven't seen it in a long time. It's, it's very good. Mm, yeah, that's what I hear. David Lynch. Twitter is continually telling me. David Lynch, uh, he's he's good. <laughs> I walked all the way to Radio Shack to pick it up in a clamshell VHS in their used section. Wow. Five bucks. So our first letter is from Johannes, and he asks us, when I watched the new Mission Impossible recently, I almost felt the urge to applaud when the credits in the beginning started. My question, when and more importantly, why did big budget Hollywood decide that it is a bad idea to put credits at the beginning of movies? And do you miss them too? Be it the legendary efforts of Saul Bass, the austere white text on black screen of Ingmar Bergman, or the title cards of classic Hollywood. I enjoyed them all. Leaving aside the aesthetical aspect of it, I also like to know which actors I'm going to see, who composed the music, who was DOP, and so on. I don't get the trend to put them at the end of the film. Seems like a waste of creative energy, especially when a part of the audience is already on their way out of the theater. Wait, was this a letter written by Ronald Reagan watching E.T.? Did you ever hear that story? No, what's that story? Where he's like, we used to put all the credits at the beginning of our movie. What's this end credit thing? (laughs) When he had to sit and watch through it. Interesting. All the best and greetings from Europe, Johannes. What do you think? Do you like the opening credit sequence? Hmm. Well, I, I I know that a friend of ours, Will Perkins, used to r- run Art of the Title. Yeah. Also, Lola Landekich, the two of them would run that site. And I love that site. It's good. Amazing site. Yeah. When I'm watching them at home, does my, for example, watching it perhaps on a computer, does my finger itch toward the skip button if I see long opening credits presented towards me? Perhaps. I don't know. I like, I like, I'm, no. a- I'm actually with Johannes. I like opening credit sequences. I like the way that they can, like, for example, the Tim Burton movies, mm. the way that certain of those movies, the opening credits are like tone setting. Well, they're the overture yeah. of the modern movie, right? And, of yeah. like, let people come in, settle in place. I like it when, yeah, Tim Burton, but that's an extreme example. Another one, Werner Herzog's Nosferatu. Do you remember the opening scene? I don't that? actually like the opening Mission Impossible credits because they show you stuff that's about to happen in the movie. Yeah. Like you see stuff from like the climax and things like that in those Mm -hmm. opening credits. So I was like, "Ah, I don't like that. Yeah. Don't show me that stuff. Mm -hmm. But if you like saw bass, that's its whole other thing. Am I happy to see my friend, the pink Panther show up during opening credits? Of course I am. Yeah. Those ones that are sort of standalone short films. Yes. Do I want the camera to zoom through a car as the credits come up? Absolutely. I mean, I kind of like the Woody Allen credits where you see the white on black again. It's like, Oh yeah, here we are. And we have an opening credit sequence in impossible horror and i went and like shot plates for it that like everyone it just needs to be done with intent that's what i like about them with the woody allen ones it's like a signature it's like we're back we're back in a woody land and i love seeing opening credits and being 
like, oh, that person's in this movie or that person's in this movie. Mm-hmm. Why? I was shot by this person? Uh, that's cool. I like that. Yeah. So I, yeah, I'm getting radicalized. I'm pro opening credits. Even though that like when me and Peter Kaplowski watch a movie and there's like wacky opening credits, we're just happy because it's a throwback to when we were growing up in the 90s that did have all those wacky opening credit sequences. What are some wacky opening credits you're thinking From the of? 90s? Probably some like James Bond movie. I mean, James Bond is one of the ultimate opening credits like short right. film things. Right. I like those because they have theme songs. Also, all those pretty busty women, right? These little silhouettes. Of, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like it when opening credits have an original theme song about the movie. Love it. Mm-hmm. Also, a rap at the end of a movie. Yes. Summing up the movie you just saw. Yes, please. Meg 2 does that. The trench. It does it. Yeah, there's a rap at the end of the movie. And uh, I think Deep Blue Sea also does a rap at the end of the picture. Nice. So bring that back. That's what I enjoy the most. Will Smith, get on it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what? He, he's not doing it. He hasn't done it in years. So I sort of rap. Wait, what movie. was his last film that he did with Anton Fuqua? The one that went direct? Em- Emancipation. Yeah, he did like a rap at the end. Emancipation. <laughs> the Pursuit of Happiness, Ali. All those movies should have had raps at like the end. Like there's a legal thing in his contract that he has to rap at the end, summing everything up. Yeah. That'd Would be love great. it. So check out Art of the Title if you want more stuff about opening credits because they're still posting stuff on there. Oh man, they're supported by Maxon, the people who do like all the red stuff. Man, we need a supporter like that. Bring in the big money. Wow, we can't we we can't have sponsors to answer to. We yeah. can't have we can't we got to be proudly independent. Oh, you mean someone who's like, "Do you really need to do an episode on Norman Torog?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we're like, "Oh, we have like special guest of some comedian who has a new show opening on Freebie or something yeah, like that yeah. <laughs> guesting on the episode." But will, what if they gave us $10,000 an episode. Then I'd say yes. <laughs> yeah, no contest. Any, anything you want. I'll have any opinion you want. I will take back anything I've ever said for $10,000 an I episode. I just unsubscribed from a podcast that shall not be named because they were doing too many ads. And I was like, that's enough of that. You know what I don't like? I don't like when celebrities do ads. Oh, I hate like it. Like Conan when, O'Brien or someone. What the fuck are you doing? And look, I get it. They're only there because some company has come to them and said, hey, do a show for us. And they have employees. Yeah. But here's the thing. Conan O'Brien can pay those employees. Like, come on. Yeah. Conan O'Brien needs a friend. You pay for your friend, Mr. (laughs) O'Brien. You you don't be like, ah, Blue Chew to get that boner. Yeah. If we can do this podcast without having ads, although again, if somebody wants to come and give us (laughs) $10,000 an episode, we'd happily do it. Yeah. That's the starting bid, by the way, 10,000 an episode. So I think someone said like they pay 50 bucks per a thousand listeners which i say not enough no not enough no unless we get a lot more listeners really soon (laughs) and then we'd be like sometimes i listen to podcasts like the more popular ones and i'm like how much do these people make yeah like just based on patreon and how much you must get from ad revenue like i mean jesus a lot yeah now we should point out some of our friends that we hate movies when i made a post about that they're like we don't make that much we also split it between there's a lot of people on this podcast that's right there's a there's a whole high school band class on mic there (laughs) so and all of them need an equal split you know and hey listen as somebody who who makes a, uh, i can't wait for michael and us to be like stamps.com when you need your stamps we haven't done it yet and it's a little bit ironic too you know yeah. we're in on it we're but, in on it but we're still cashing in yeah you know what i'll just say you know us podcast professionals we're still making a lot less than any dentist does <laughs> well a lot yes. a lot less the, a lot less no. <laughs> 
I mean, we're probably making a fraction of what a dentist than makes. anyone who still has a nine to five job uh, yeah, in a bank. I, like, actually, that is that is success on the podcast realm is to is to just barely make what someone in a bank or some a nine to five in their job. first year in their first year at that job. Well, uh, so what I'm saying is on Patreon this week which you should subscribe to. We're talking about Pee-wee's Big Adventure and Paul Rubens in general. I thought you were going to say, we were going to talk about Norman Turog part two. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're lucky. We get to talk about, you know, mm. anything we want. By the way, patreon.com slash the important Port cinema, cinema club. club. Hours and hours and hours of stuff. Do we have any more letters? Yeah, we way? do have letters. Okay, well, there was your Patreon segment, and now let's have another letter. Yeah, and then we'll shill the Patreon segment again right after. Just in case you're one of those people that like, oh, they're doing the order that I used to skip, 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 skip to the good I'll stuff. skip the letters to the ad, to yeah. the Patreon ad, my favorite segment. <laughs> Speaking of part two, the listener Jacob actually asked, have you ever considered doing a second follow-up episode on a director beside Jess Franco, who is the only one who has gotten a part two in the official available Important Cinema Cove lexicon. Well, we've been talking about when we hit episode 400, we might do like a month of episodes or even 10 weeks of episodes where we revisit select topics mm. from early in the show. Because and, and Patreon is also a way that we just revisit similar topics over and over again just by focusing on a specific movie. Yeah, we've done a couple of Lucio Fulci's. Yeah, a lot of Jackie Chan. A lot of Jackie Chan. A lot Chan. of Martin Scorsese as well. Yeah. We've done a lot of his movies. I've never done a main episode on him as a filmmaker. We did a main episode on him as a cinephile. Yeah, that's right. But we would like to do eventually one where like, for example... We did an early episode on Clint Eastwood. Mm -hmm. Like we could easily, we could do another. We should get oh, Orson Welles. We should Wells. do the bad Clint Eastwood. Oh, that would be like interesting. Bronco Billy. Well, that like, Bronco Billy's good. I know uh, every every which way. Well, like the rookie. Oh, one of those. Yeah, yeah. One of the orangutan ones that would be good. I'm trying to think of his other. I mean, you can just look at blood work. Yeah. So you pick one from each period of his career oh. that is considered the bad one. Paint your wagon. Oh, yes. Wouldn't that be great? We can do one from every decade. <laughs> yeah, we'll do that. Yeah, coming up, the bad Clint Eastwood. Ah, but we could just do, I mean, yeah, I was going to say his late period, but you've covered that ad nauseum on all the podcasts that you've done. <laughs> He's got another one coming out, doesn't he? This jury one? Well, production was shut down because of the strike. He's Hope not going to live through it. <sighs> what are you guys doing? I know. I think everyone should be allowed to cross the picket line for Clint. For Clint Eastwood. And Clint alone. Clint's like, I just need like two more days and then I'm done. Yeah. Like, that's all he needs. He should have just like shot the whole movie. Like when he heard SAG was like about to happen. He's like, all right, let's just finish this up. One take every scene. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you guys can't do it, you're fired. Yeah. Get in here. I need a replacement. Woody Allen. <laughs> the Clint Eastwood movie. <laughs> oh, wait. John Cleese is here too. Oh, no. Hey, wait. Did that new Roman Polanski film play already? It's coming to the Venice Film Festival. Oh, so it hasn't opened yet. No, it opens in Italy at the end of September. Oh, and this letter writer also asked if we would be up to doing an episode, and he has never come up before. Jorg Butegur. I'm not saying his name. Necromantic guy. Oh, necromantic. Yeah. One and two. And what's the one he other? Ah, uh, I have it. In, I know if I see it, it's that blood red cover and like the guy's face kind of like cut yeah. in two. So necromantic is, if you don't know, it is one of those. I mean, if Can you, you believe they made this movie, yeah. if you were reading like video hounds, cult flicks and trash, if you picks, have Steven throwers, like eyeball, like any zine from like the eighties and nineties, necromantic is going to come up. And it is, as you have probably guessed, a necrophilia themed 
cult movie sort of a is, is it german is yeah, that what german. it is yeah i mean you're I not even that familiar with it well i saw it once a long time you ago you have both 4k releases that were put out of it right i have the arrow blu-ray mm. but i don't like it very much and necromantic you, 2 is like... very weird not really yeah. but necromantic 2 i think is very odd and like different like you got a much bigger budget so it feels like it's like the evil dead 2 to the evil dead 1 of necromantic you know what i wouldn't say no to an episode that director's a huge godzilla fan too he's done like a bunch of like little short oh. films about him too so well sounds like my kind of guy and i don't think yeah has he been directing movies since then like i think there's those four that i know is there a possible shocktober episode in this yeah oh or do we want to waste one on him (laughs) (laughs) well hey will we have no masters we could we could we could be shocktober in november if we wanted all right let's do that (laughs) so put him on the list he's going on the list thanks for bringing him up yeah again his name was everywhere when I was like getting into mm-hmm. cult cinema when I was a kid, but like doesn't seem to get mentioned that much anymore. Yeah. Like that, those were one of the VHSs you would hear like Robin Bougie talk about, like would be taken at the border and seized. Right. Would right. be one of those. And now you can just get it at uh, like any Amazon will yeah. sell it to you. Yeah. I'm sure it's actually on Amazon through like the arrow video release. Mm-hmm. So thank you very much for that letter. And our Patreon this week is Paul Rubens. Paul Rubens, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Like we say, making less than a first-year person at a law firm. <laughs> yeah, so, become a Patreon subscriber. So, Thank you. So help me get my non-existent child through college. People have said that they really enjoy our What We've Been Watching episodes, and you can listen to the one we did last week. Well, I'm glad. They're very easy to do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just riff, riff. Riff, 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 like. riff. These episodes are very heavily scripted. <laughs> That's oh, what... yeah. Well, not anymore because the writers are on strike. <laughs> yeah. Now so we're... now Justin and I have had Wait, to... are we using union writers on the show? <laughs> yeah, Justin and I have now had had to for the first time ever write our own episodes so if the quality seems a little worse than it did before that's, that's why. why so next week on the podcast we're taking a sideways approach to a familiar topic yeah we're doing johnny toe right no well. but we're doing something johnny toe adjacent Johnny Toe, as any self-respecting fan of Hong Kong cinema knows, is the what the CEO or something the founder the house director of Milky Way image a very famous Hong Kong production company. That's where he makes his triad movies as well as his romantic comedies and a company that's one of the most famous post-1997 Hong Kong companies. And we're not going to be talking about Johnny Toe. Well, we are. Because some of the movies that we're going to be talking about that were produced by Milky Way, Johnny Toe has been like, well, I ghost directed that film, even though someone else's name is on it. So we're going to be talking about Milky Way Image, the company, which inevitably will include some Johnny Toe discussion. But yeah, what is the company's place in the firmament of Hong Kong cinema? What are some of the other directors films being made do they reflect johnny toe what do they tell us about hong kong at the time so i'm gonna recommend watching motorway which is directed by soy chang the guy who made spl2 he's like you know the bad boy of hong kong cinema and i will also recommend the longest night that's a really good one and i'd have to look at the list because i want like ones from different eras because there was like a bunch that were made together like expect the unexpected oh beyond hyperthermia is a late 90s one and was directed by a guy who for a while seemed to be like the next hong kong director like he did a movie called task force he was going to direct i think bullet in the head 2 which was going to be made for a while sequel to the john woo film yeah because he was a john woo guy and then that didn't end up happening then he ended up directing kind of meh he directed the twins effect Oh, good God. So that's what we'll be doing next week. Milky Way Image. And until then, my name is Justin McClue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening.
I'd like to thank some of our new patron subscribers, who include Sam Time, Benoit Le Cenobite, Ian McNamara, Ash Shea Kelleher, Jordan Sekarishia, Maurice Jones, Kenny Jones, Stephen Hefferman, Andrew Craybaum, Ben M., and Scott Turnbull. Thank you very much for becoming patron subscribers. We could not keep doing this without you. Well, the movies are back. Woo! Barbie, Oppenheimer. Yep. The Meg 2. <laughs> now, you, you saw the Meg 2. I did see the Meg 2. Me and my friends, we had a Megathon <laughs> where we got together. We watched Meg 1, Shark Attack 3, Megalon, Megadalon. I can't say that Me- word. Meg- Megadalon. I saw that film, Shark Attack, Megalodon. Yeah, that's the one that has the famous line, like, how about we go back to your house and I'll yeah. eat your pussy. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's a new image film we were watching. I was like, ah, you know, movies used to be movies. Shot on film <laughs> in Bulgaria. Everyone's dubbed. Shot by the cinematographer and directed by the cinematographer of Bronco Billy, David Worth. Wow. And uh, then we watch Meg 2. Now, Meg 1, I- I've been seeing a lot online that people are like, Meg 1, good. People said it was bad. Nah, it's good. Well, the Meg 2 is directed by no less than Ben Wheatley. Yeah. But we watch Meg 1, directed by no less John Turtletob, <laughs> director of Bruce Willis in The Kid. I saw somebody joking on Twitter. I think it was Sean Glennis say that it's like, well, this is like how the Mission Impossible movies used to be auteur movies. <laughs> yeah, you know, Turtletob, Wheatley. So we went into The Meg 2 a little bit. We'll do it. Well, it, it had 0% on Rotten Tomatoes for a while. Now, The Meg 2 as well is not playing anywhere in Toronto. It's playing in 3D at Young and Dundas. It's playing in Screen X at Scotiabank. We saw it at the Market Square Cinema because it's the only place we could see it, not in a special format. Wow. The opening weekend. What is going on? Huge movie. Warner Brothers. Yeah. I don't know what's going on in Toronto and why it's being buried like that. What got... do the elites not want you to see? Yeah. And the Meg 2, do you know how many people in the audience were with us? Zero. It was only us three in the audience for a 945 screening on a Saturday. Wow. Even Adam Naiman wasn't out joining you to see the new <laughs> oh, Wheatley. the man who wrote the book on yeah, Ben Wheatley. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, he was not. And you know what? We hooting and hollered through all of it. Had a blast. Wow. I'm glad. I'm, like, I'm happy to hear that. Looking at the reviews, we were ge- genuinely like, what? Like, what did people want? Because it's super fun. Right. It does the thing, a little Jurassic World-ish, is that it actually introduces like a bunch of different monsters as well as the Meg. There's martial arts fights in it. You know, Ben Wheatley trying to do as entertaining a sequel to the Meg as he can make. When I hear that Ben Wheatley directed it, it's kind of like when you find out that Raul Ruiz directed a Stephen Baldwin thriller or something. <laughs> yes. like. Well, I mean, Ben Wheatley has been connected to big budget pictures for the longest time. He, he was, was going to do Tomb Raider. Do, yeah, Tomb Raider sequel, yeah. And, you know, I would say that one of the things that like did make me a little bit not excited for it were the reviews and also it's like Ben Wheatley's not really known as a fun director no so like you know it's interesting that he would tackle this kind of stuff but again we had a blast there's tons of villains in it who dispatched in humorous ways so it's also an American Chinese co-production yes which you don't see as much anymore you didn't rush out to see the Meg 2 in theaters Will <laughs> no I haven't but I, I don't know I'm kind of curious did about you see it. the first Meg no I didn't see the first I don't Meg. think you'd like Meg 2 yeah <laughs> I mean, you need we to know each other's taste pretty well. At you this need point. to watch it to be able to do your like in three months when you're like, this is the state of movies. <laughs> oh, my one of my blog pieces. Yeah. yeah. Well, what does the Meg 2 say about I did look at box office results and it seems to be second or third on box office. So it's not like 
like opening at number ninth or anything like that. I may be mistaken. I think it's being projected for like 30 million. Yeah. Which is not great. But the first one made over, I didn't even know the first one made a huge hit. A lot, a lot of, especially overseas. It was massive. Well, I guess that's all that really matters, right? Will the Meg two make a bunch of money in China? Yeah. I was surprised that there's like a little kid in the Meg and she comes back in the second one. She has done nothing since the Meg. Same actor that they brought back. So, you know, and there's weird connections. So that there's tons of references to the Meg one. Almost like cheeky. Like, you probably watched the Meg one before watching this movie because it would make no <laughs> sense otherwise. I love that shit. I'm just eating it up. Like, So you heard it here first. The Meg three. Oh, would love it. Well, The Meg is also a famous unmade movie that it's based on a novel in the 90s. And everyone tried to direct it for the longest time was going to be an Eli Roth directed movie. And they just couldn't get it off the ground, which is really funny because a period in time where Hollywood was like, do people want shark movies? So who should make The Meg 3? Hmm. Alex Ross Perry. (laughs) (laughs) I bet you he would love to make The Meg 3. Yeah. Like he's just waiting because he, I remember hearing an interview when like Winnie the Pooh or Christopher Robin came out. He's like, I received no calls after that film came out in theaters. Like no one was like, oh, we're going to give you this job or that job. So I wonder how Ben Wheatley got the job. Was he putting himself forward for like. Probably he he said to some agent. I will do anything. He said like, I want to make some money. Let's make some money. (laughs) Make some money. Yeah. Yeah. Who is like another mumblecore? Like, but. Coming up. So it can't be like Mark Duplass's The Meg 3 or anything like that. Yeah. Remember when Nicholas Winding Refn, they were like, he's going to direct Wonder Woman. And you're like, could you imagine? It would not be a blockbuster. No, I can't because he doesn't have those filmmaking muscles. Mm-hmm. People are like, how dare you insult Nick like that right now? Yeah, I don't know. For The Meg 3, maybe it could be Rick Alverson. Or, Rick Alverson? Uh, Who's that? Uh, he he did the comedy with Tim Heidecker. <laughs> or uh, a- Amy Simetz. Or, or how about Joel Petrikas? You know, Joel Petrikas. Petrikas is the Meg 3. Who's Joel Petrikas for people that don't know? He made that film Buzzard. You remember Buzzard? Yes. Yeah, basically all of his films are about like a disaffected 20-something being miserable and just digging himself deeper into the hole. Yeah, or God, I don't know, Peter Vack. Let's get Peter Vack's the Meg 3. Well, I will say that Ben Wheatley was a TV guy before he did movies. So he already had that experience as like delivering something that people expected, was in a box. He also directed a bunch of Doctor Who episodes. Mm. So it's not like... You're not taking like an indie guy that knows nothing. I mean, but Hollywood always does that. Like, oh, City of Lost Children? Yeah, get this director to make Alien 4 Resurrection. He still does, though. Ben Wheatley still does some like smaller things. He does. Yes, he does. Which is good. If you can keep that up. One for them, one for me. Yeah. And then it'll be The Flash 2 directed by Ben Wheatley. God, did you see Rebecca by him? No, you brought this up last time he came up and I watched 10 minutes and I went, no, thank you. You did the right thing. Yeah, because it looked bad. 